delays at the airport, delays in the grocery store, delays of answers to our questions. We all hate delays. When Jesus rose again from the dead, his disciples thought for sure it was kingdom time. But Jesus was not yet ready to put the coup d'etat on Satan. Let's look at the story of Acts with our study leader Dave Wurtson and discover why God delayed the coming of his kingdom to earth. I hate delays. You know, I'm gonna, when you're in Walmart, how many of you look for the very shortest line? Anybody? Look for the shortest line. You look for the express checkout. This summer, Mary and I were up in Canada. We've been gone about, uh, about 10 days, and uh, we really needed to get home. We got to the Toronto airport. It was about probably two hours from where we had been in eastern Canada. And uh, there we are sitting in the Toronto airport getting ready to get on American Airlines. We go very early uh, to the gate. Uh, there's plenty of time. But I start noticing a whole bunch of people are gathering at this gate and then they made that announcement, we have overbooked this flight. Anybody ever been there, done that? And uh, they said, some of you need to volunteer. And my wife's uh, got a lot of Dutch blood in her, so she said, man, let's volunteer, because they promised that if we would delay, that there would be rewards. And so we went up there, and sure enough, they put us up in a really nice hotel by the airport there in Toronto, and they gave us meals for the night, enough to buy a meal for Mary and not enough to buy a meal for me. And uh, they promised that for sure we'd have a flight uh, the next morning. And sure enough, early in the morning, we were able to get on an airplane and we were able to get uh, back home to Dallas. So in that case, the delay was sweetened with some really good rewards. You might not realize it, but we've been coming through his story. We're coming to a part where all of a sudden there's a major twist in the story. Remember, Genesis 3.15 is the heartbeat of the Scripture. And we realize that we've been studying through the Bible. There's a tremendous conflict. I've been teaching to you that you're in the midst of a war. At you begin, the war takes place over Adam and Eve's heart. They choose to join the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, they choose to disobey the Lord. They choose to walk into a realm of death. God said, if you disobey me, you're going to surely die. And Genesis 3.15, as God brings judgment upon the serpent, and he brings judgment upon Adam and Eve, he says, I am going to curse the serpent. He says that there's going to be great enmity. There's going to be great hostility between the woman's seed who chooses to live for God and those that are the serpent seed that chooses to live for the serpent. And then we saw that the Lord would promise a great deliverer. It said he, this great serpent slayer, will slay the serpent, mortally wound him. But in doing so, there's going to be a strike at the heel of the great Messiah that's promised. And we traced all the way through the Old Testament story. We're just completing the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John finally give us the climax of the story, you might say. It's the big moment because the serpent slayer has arrived. I want you to know that you live on a planet that's been visited by God's Son. And that's the heartbeat message of the Scripture. As you come through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus shows us what God's kingdom is like. In God's kingdom, nobody will be blind. In God's kingdom, nobody will be deaf. In God's kingdom, nobody will have mental illness. In God's kingdom, nobody will suffer death. The curse of death will be removed. You say, Dave, how do I know that? Because Jesus can just speak to Lazarus, and Lazarus comes forth. 
Jesus can just say the word to the widow of Nain's son, and he rises from the dead. And then most of all, the climax of the gospel, right at the heartbeat, all the way through the scripture, we have Satan trying to kill the male seed. You had that in, in uh, the story of Exodus, where, where the great pharaoh is trying to kill all the baby boys. You had it with uh, the time of, of King David's progression, his line, little baby Joash is only a little tiny baby. He's the last remaining heir that had legitimate uh, claim to the throne of David. And Ataliah tries to kill him. But his nurse grabs a hold of him and saves this little baby Joash. And we've got this story. It's a cliffhanger. You come to the story of Esther in the time of the Persian Empire as we have the children of Israel in exile. And wicked Haman decides, I'm going to kill all the Israelites. And we've got a big holocaust that's planned against the Jewish people. What the story of the Old Testament was is the serpent's trying to wipe out all the seed of the woman that's trusting in the Lord and the Messiah that's going to come. At the cross, the great twist in the story is suddenly it looks like Satan won. The Lord Jesus says to Judas, you've walked out into the darkness. This is Satan's hour. We have Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And the last time that I taught you, I stressed that Jesus was crying out because he took our sin upon himself, and it looks like the serpent has won. From Good Friday afternoon when Jesus died, through those three days, the early Sunday morning, it looks like the serpent has won the war. Sometimes in your own life, it's going to look like the serpent has won the war. Sometimes it's going to seem like, you know, that, that we're, we're, we're defeated. Some of you this morning, as you look at your life, you say, Dave, I'm wrestling with physical illness. I'm wrestling with, with emotional illness. I'm wrestling with sin. I, I have besetting weaknesses that I just can't get a victory over. That's the way the disciples felt when Jesus was in the grave. And the women anointed the body. They put him in the tomb. And then on Easter morning that we celebrate in the rhythm of our calendar every Easter, we're remembered, our whole culture, in fact, the whole world stops because Christ has come alive from the dead. And that's a tremendous joy that reverberates through the early disciples. Peter and comes running back as the tomb's empty, the clothes are there. Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. You have the two on the road to Emmaus, and I talked to you about them, how they don't recognize the Lord, and then suddenly he breaks bread, and they say, good night, he's alive, he's alive, and they go running back to Jerusalem. And I want you to feel the tremendous excitement as you come through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the early disciples, the 11 apostles that are going to form the foundation of the church. They think, this is it. What would you think? If you were following a leader that you saw him crucified, you saw them put a, a spear into his side, you saw him dead, 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 and then suddenly, for a period of 40 days, intermittently, you get to eat with this resurrected Christ. You get to spend time with this resurrected Christ. It would be an incredible, incredible high. Can you imagine what it was like during those 40 days when Jesus would appear to the disciples and what they felt like? Well, what they felt like is it's kingdom time. The Old Testament promised that ultimately the great serpent slayer is going to destroy the serpent. He's going to set up God's kingdom on earth. He's going to end the curse. And he's going to bring in a kingdom that was promised to David that his kingdom will never end. And it's going to be the hope of every one of us. All of human beings have a passion 
for the world to be right, for the world to become what it's not now, for what it can be. And the disciples feel this is it. And I want you to feel that because this is a big twist in the story. As you turn to Acts chapter 1 and turn there with me, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are expecting Jesus to initiate the kingdom. Look what they say, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, O Theophilus, and that's the book of Luke, and Theophilus is Luke's patron, the patron that's probably providing for the funds for the publication of this manuscript, or perhaps Luke is writing to this young believer to help him understand what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up from heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, now he's reviewing the book of Luke. The book of Luke talks about Jesus' suffering. Did it end there? No. Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I want you to notice that. Our message this morning and the reason we're worshiping Jesus is because he's alive. Jesus is alive. He's the only human being that ever suffered death and death couldn't hold him. And he's the only human being that's ever lived that rose again and received a body that will never die again, that is eternal. And this is very important. By many convincing proofs, during 40 days, these disciples saw the only man that died and beat it. That's the essence of our faith. I want to underscore it. I had a guy uh, call me, you know, he's in Asia. Well, yesterday he was in, he was in Africa. He's flying to Asia. He said his co-pilot. Is, uh, is really interested in Buddhism. And he says, we're talking back and forth, and he's listened to his story, and he listened to these messages, and he's really asking a lot of questions. And my friend said, I don't know that much about Buddhism. And I said, well, we can help you with that. But I said, the important thing is, Buddha's dead, and Jesus is alive. That's the difference. And he said, I know, and he wrote me back, you know, we're text mes- mes- messaging through the internet. He's saying, praise God, that's what I believe, and it's so simple. And then he says, why don't people get it? Well, that's what our role is to be used by the Holy Spirit, to help people get it. And I really want you to understand that. We're not following some great philosophy. We're not following some great uh, moral uh, movement in society. We're not following uh, someone that can teach us how to be quiet in our souls and to meditate. We're following someone who can teach us and can give us the gift of conquering death. Amen? That's what I want. I don't want to stay in the grave. How about you? That's the whole point of the Jesus story. So don't miss it. The book of Acts is about resurrection power. Jesus, and Dr. Luke is telling us, Jesus gave convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, how did the disciples respond to this? They say, well, then this must be it. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. What was that gift? For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked the Lord, Lord, are you at this time going to give us the Holy Spirit? How many of you have that in your Bible? So did they listen? How many of you moms and dads say to your kids, you're not listening to me? Anybody ever say that? How many of you have trouble listening to the Lord sometimes? You just, he, he just doesn't, you don't pay attention to him. Well, join the human race. Join the 11 disciples that are at the end of this chapter. There will be Mattathias added, added, we'll be back to 12. The disciples have trouble listening. What did Jesus just promise? 
he said, you need to stay here in Jerusalem because John the Baptist promised there would come one after him who would baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I want you to stay right here because in not too many days, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what do they ask Jesus about? They ask him, are you, look what it says, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So what are they expecting? In his story, as we come to the Bible, the disciples figure the story goes like this. Jesus has come. He offers himself as the Messiah. He's rejected. He dies like Isaiah 53 says he would. He rises again from the dead. Now he's appearing to the disciples. And remember the disciples said, Jesus told them, you're going to rule on the 12 thrones over the tribe of Israel. The Lord told them that in the gospel. So they're saying, this is our kingdom time. What are they expecting? Jesus to leave their little upper room gathering, to leave their little picnic up in Galilee where he met with Peter. He expects him to go marching down to the south. Thousands of Israelites join him. They go into the Jerusalem temple. They take over the temple. They throw Pilate and all of his Caesarean legions out of Palestine. And Jesus, the one who's conquered death sets up his kingdom on earth. Doesn't that sound like a great plan? That's what the disciples are thinking. And by the way, God promised that one day that's going to take place. But now you say, Dave, how do you know that? Because at the end of this little section, it says um, that the angels appear to them. And uh, the angels come look at verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Jesus, at the end of this passage, Jesus ascends into heaven. So the picture here, the disciples are on the Mount of Olives. Jesus makes some statements about what they really need to be about. What I want to share with you today, which is the whole story of the book of Acts, it's a story that we're still a part of. But as they're watching Jesus, suddenly he just ascends up into heaven. In other words, he breaks the dimension between the spiritual world, the eternal world of his Father, and the present physical existence. And he goes up, the Shekinah glory obscures him, and suddenly he's gone to go to the right hand of God. Stephen later on sees him when he's martyred, standing at the right hand of God, which is a statement, Jesus is an authority. Now, what do the angels say? You got the picture. Here are the disciples. What would you do? If you were sitting with your teacher and suddenly, you know, he does the, 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 uh, the, the space blast, only there's no Saturn rockets going, he just suddenly starts rising up, what would you do? I'd be standing there going. You know what? There's a whole bunch of you in the church. This is what you're doing. In fact, for 2,000 years, a lot of the church has been going like this. Some of you are all excited. Is this the time? Is this the time? There was an earthquake. There's a great seismic thing. A great wave hit the Southeast Asia. This could be the time. You come to me all the time. Man, is this the time? Good night. I remember I was at Dallas Seminary one day. In fact, it was during the 73 war when suddenly the, the, the temple area came under Israelite domination again. The first time in, since 70 AD, the Jews controlled the temple area. And one of my profs got up and said, the time to the Gentiles is ending. Just like Luke said it was. And in essence, he's saying, man, get on your tiptoes. We're going up. We didn't. And a whole bunch of people in the church are standing there like this. Is this the time? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates which the Father has set 
by his own authority. This is really important, church family. In fact, the angels promised. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This morning, I want all of you to get your eyes off the sky. And I want you to get your eyes where the Lord wants them to be. It says, I want, it says, men of Galilee, you're standing there looking into the sky. This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come back. In the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So one thing that all believers, I don't care if you're from a Reformed background, I don't care if you're from a Roman Catholic background, I don't care if you jump and skip with Assembly of God, I don't care what background you're from, I don't care if you're an old intellectual Bible church person and you know all the dispensations cold. One thing that all of us should be agreed on, we should all be agreed on the fact that Jesus is coming again. And that's really important. In fact, it's so precious It's so precious that we need to stop arguing about whether he comes pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, or amil. The truth of the matter is probably we don't have enough details in the Scripture to solve that one. If we did, we probably would have solved it in 2,000 years of church history. One of the things that really concerns me as we grow older is we argue about stuff that you really can't get a good answer from Scripture, and we ignore the stuff that Scripture answers very clearly. And one of the things the disciples ask, are you going to do it at this time? And the Lord says, it's not for you to know the time. That's the whole point. The Lord could come at any time. We don't know when he's coming. So the big question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we supposed to do before he comes? And this is the twist in the story. The disciples think the storyline will be restoration of the kingdom to Israel, destruction of all the earthly enemies, and the the millennial kingdom comes, or some eternal kingdom comes, and God rules and reigns, and we win. But the Lord says, not yet. Because what the Lord said, go back in the paragraph and look what it says. It says, says, don't leave Jerusalem until the Lord gives his gift. And I want you to look at verse 7. He said to them, This is how the Lord answered the question, will you at this time give the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father is set by his own authority. Only God knows when the new age will come in its fullness on earth. No one knows except the Father when Jesus is going to break through the blue and come back to the Mount of Olives just like he went up. And I believe with all my heart that that day is coming and it could come today. But we don't know the time. What are we supposed to do? It says this, but you, you as born-again believers, if you know Christ as your Savior, this is your role. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, witnesses to the resurrection. Because remember the the paragraph before this, there was many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. It says you will receive power with the Holy Spirit. You'll become my witnesses in Jerusalem in their hometown area, and in Judea. Jerusalem and Judea are the, Jerusalem's the capital of Judea. It's the major city of Israel. Judea's right around it. And then they go across ethnic lines of Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Big divide ethnically. And then they're going to go to the ends of the earth. And using an expression in Greek that would mean to the farthest corners of the, the, the world. Now that's what the book of Acts is going to be about. The book of Acts is about Jesus ascending to heaven, but brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't leave us alone. What happens in Acts chapter 1 is it's preparation. The disciples need to complete the 12th man. They're good A&Mers. They have an empty place in the original foundation. So Judas has committed suicide, warning us that you can walk with Jesus and miss him. 
You can even do miracles in Jesus' name and miss him. You can still live in enemy territory. You can still be part of the bad seed. But Acts chapter 1 closes with the disciples closing the gap. And Acts chapter 1 closes with Mattathias completing the 12th man. And now we have the foundation that Jesus said is going to be the foundation of his church. But the big event is Acts chapter 2. And it's the day of Pentecost, the 120 disciples. It's not just the 12 apostles, but Jesus' mom is there. James, his brother's there. Judas, one of his brothers, is there. All of his family's there along with making a group of 120. Suddenly, God's Holy Spirit comes upon them. They see something like cloven tongues of fire around their head, speaking of the purging, cleansing influence of God's Holy Spirit that's going to be reaching out into the world. You have them suddenly able to speak in languages that they haven't studied. We have in Acts chapter 2, it says that there's Jews from the diaspora, from the scattering of the Jews that are from every part of the Roman Empire, all the way to Elam in the east and all the way to, uh, to Asia Minor, the western regions of Asia Minor. They're all gathered together in Jerusalem. And what do they start to do? The Holy Spirit moves us to praise God. When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're moved to give adoration to God. And that's what these early disciples start to do. And in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, with all of the group, are praising God. They go down to the Jerusalem temple area, probably the court of the Gentiles. And the people start gathering around because they hear them speaking, and they can understand their heart language. They can understand that the language that is the language they learned as kids. Now, this is the great reversal. In the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah predicted that the Israelites would be scattered. They would be scattered to the winds. And he said, you wouldn't listen to me when I spoke to you in your heart language of Hebrew. So I'm going to send you to Babylon, and you're going to hear Akkadian. And I'm going to send you to Persia, and you're going to hear Aramaic. And at first it's going to be, how many of you have ever been in a foreign country and you can't understand anything? Anybody ever done that? How do you feel when you can't understand anything? As strange, foreign. In fact, we need to pray for our missionaries. One of the greatest, greatest uh, uh, conflicts that the evil one brings against us when we live in a culture for a long time and we, and we start to get over the thrill of the beginning of it, suddenly it hits us. I'm a foreigner and I'm estranged and I'm very lonely. And all of you that are missionaries know that tremendous darkness and feelings of estrangement that come over you. What Pentecost is a picture of is the Tower of Babel's now reversed. And the judgment against the dispersed Israelites is now reversed. Because now the Lord is reaching out into all these languages that now have become their heart languages from their foreign lands. And now God is speaking to them, and they can understand it. And they all gather together. And some of we have one of the very first attacks from the evil one, because some of the crowd says they're drunk. One of the signs of the Holy Spirit is that it looks like you're controlled by alcohol, only there's no ethanol in your system. It means you're relaxed. It means that you're full of joy. Some of you need to ask the Holy Spirit to do that because you're way uptight. You never really let yourself go like a little child and rejoice in the Lord. The Holy Spirit causes you to be like a child and you get out of yourself and you get into God. And the early church experienced that. Peter stands up and says, These men are not drunk with wine, 
like you think. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But what has happened is Joel promised there would come a time when God would baptize, not just a Moses, not just an Elijah, not just a David, but he would baptize young and old alike, men and women. He would baptize all different kinds of people, and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And and Peter had the, the courage and the power of the Holy Spirit upon him, the same guy that had denied the Lord with the very crowd that yelled, crucify him. Now, just 50 days later, he's standing up and says, the ethic of his message is, you crucified the Messiah. But God has turned the tables and raised him from the dead. And it's time for you to turn away from your wicked ways. And it's time for you to receive the resurrected Christ. Now, what's going to happen in that meeting? What do you think would happen with a crowd that 50 days earlier is yelling, crucify him. We want Barabbas. He's a murderer. What's going to happen? And this is what I want you to get a hold of. Peter, it wasn't because he gave such a great message. It wasn't, which it was a great message, but that's not what happened. That's not what the power came from. The apostle Peter was now filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's something as a church family I want us to really understand. We've got to understand, how many of you feel that you're facing unbelievers today that are not going to listen? How many of you have relatives that aren't going to listen? How many of you have friends at school that aren't going to listen? How many of you can think of someone right now that you say, Dave, in my wildest dreams, this person will never come to Jesus? And you feel helpless. You feel like you just can't do this. Well, when you start feeling helpless, that's a good time for us, all of us. Because it was impossible for the crowd that crucified Jesus to turn around. But the book of Acts tells us, in Acts chapter 2, that they were penetrated to the heart. The Holy Spirit of God convicted their heart, and 3,000 of them turned around. And suddenly, the crowd that yelled, crucify him, said, we, we did wrong. We rejected God's Messiah. And they were baptized, they humbled themselves, and the church, just like that, was born. It went to 3,000, just like that. So some of you that think that the church needs to be 70, what are you going to do with Acts chapter 2? If some of you think the church needs to be 200, what are you going to do with Acts chapter 2? In, in a split second of time, the Holy Spirit made a church in Jerusalem that went to 3,000, just like that. And they had to respond to that. And Acts 2, 41 and following talks to us about how they responded to that, how they started meeting in homes by the power of the Spirit. They started studying the apostles' doctrine. They started praying together. They had community together. That's the marvelous chapter that you've all heard messages about where they where they uh, they. They give of their possessions to meet one another, just like brothers and sisters. And when the Spirit of God is really upon a group, that's what happens in our midst. We start treating each other like brothers and sisters, and that's what was happening in the early church. And that's Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter and John go to the temple. There's a man that's crippled at the gate, the gate called Beautiful. He hasn't walked. And he's begging on, just like you've seen in the streets down at the West End. You see somebody there crippled up, and they're, and they're asking for alms. And you don't know what to do? Peter goes and says, I don't have any arms. And the poor beggar goes, oh, goodness, man, I'm one of these crackpots again. What do I need? I need money. He says, what do you need? He says, I need some money. And great apostle Peter said, I don't have any silver, but what I have, I'll give to you. 
He said, in the name of Jesus, I want you to get up and walk. And that man jumped to his feet. He started praising God. And he comes into the temple area. And man, you talk about a stir. People gather because this beggar that everybody knows in the city is now jumping and leaping. And Peter preaches again. This time we've got an old enemy. What I want you to see is all I can do is whet your appetite for the book of Acts this morning. But now the conflict again begins. We've got the good seed. What's the good seed? It's resurrection power. Resurrection power. It's caused 3,000 people that one 50 days earlier rejected Christ. Now they've responded to him. Resurrection power took a crippled guy at the gate, and he now is jumping and leaping. Resurrection power causes Peter to just nail the gospel again, and this time the church either adds 5,000 or it grows to 5,000. But man, this movement is like a brush fire. It's growing like crazy. But that's when we have an old enemy. And one of the things that all of us need to get a hold of as we study his story, if you're going to follow the resurrected Christ, if you're going to believe in the Messiah, you need to understand there's going to be great opposition. And our old enemy, the same enemy that Jesus has, attacks the apostles in the early chapters of Acts. As this brush fire, the new church begins to permeate Jerusalem, hundreds of people are coming to the Savior. The Lord's talking about daily. He's adding those that are responding to the faith. The Jewish hierarchy, the priests and the scribes that are into Judaism, they rise up against this new movement. And one of the things I want you to understand as American believers, if you really follow the resurrected Christ, it's going to cost when you start building God's kingdom. Some of you quit as soon as it's hard, as soon as someone teases you at school, as, some, as soon as someone threatens you. We got to get over that. This is a war. It's a great war because we're not shooting with M16s. We're shooting with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that people that are dead can come alive again. But it is a war. And the Jewish leaders, just like they tried to snuff out Jesus, and they did put him on the cross, and the book of Acts says that God worked it all together to bring about our salvation, in the book of Acts it tells the same story. Those that followed Jesus faced the same suffering that he did. And one of the major attacks from the serpent seed is from the religious leaders. So one of the things I want all of you to realize is some of the hardest attacks that will come against the resurrected message of Jesus is going to come from religious leaders. So remember that. Some of the strongest attacks are going to be those that are trying to, to say it's in a building. It's in a ritual. It's in a religious hierarchy. It's not in the gift of eternal life given by the Savior. Stephen would be the example of the person that took the brunt of this temptation, of this, of this attack from the evil one. Stephen is responding to a, an internal problem that took place in the church, which is another way that Satan's attacked, just to give you an idea of what's happening in the book of Acts. As the church is growing, we've got the attack from without that attacks at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We have apostles arrested. But then we have an attack from within in Acts chapter 6. It says that the widows that spoke Greek were not, their needs weren't met. You say, Dave, what's going on? What's going on is what happens in all churches. We start doing good things. How many of you have ever been involved in trying to meet people's needs and then people get ticked? Anybody ever had that happen? They get angry. Well, don't quit. That happened at the birth of the birth of the church. In Acts chapter 6, what is happening is Satan attacks from within. 
the Greek-speaking women. Now, this is what was happening here. The Hebrew-speaking women were the ones that were pure Israelites. And they've all received Jesus now, but these are the ones that haven't compromised with the Greek culture. Which, by the way, in the time of the Maccabees, people died because they wouldn't compromise with the Greek culture. So these Hebrew-speaking Jews in Jerusalem are the purists. They're the fundamentalists. You got it? They're the ones that have all the, the, the T's crossed, all the I's pointed. The Greek-speaking Jews are the ones that have compromised. They're the ones that go to the Olympic Games. They're the ones that live in Greek cities. And they're the ones that the the traditional Jewish Hebrew-speaking people would feel had compromised. How do you feel about believers that drink a little bit? What do you feel about believers that maybe dance? As Texans, you don't think anything of that. But where I was raised, those are fighting words. In fact, where I was raised, I would get thrown out for ever suggesting that those might even be questionable areas because they're not. And I want you to feel. How many of you have ever been exposed to people that reject you because you don't use the King James Bible? You see, that's the line right there. And that's what Satan attacks. And the early church was attacked by that. The ones that are really strict are meeting the needs of all their widows. The ones that aren't so strict about food and drink and about obeying the laws of Judaism, they're being neglected. What did the early church do? They all gathered together and they prayed. And you know what they did? They appointed seven individuals And every one of those seven individuals has a Greek name, which means they were what? Were they Hebrew speakers or Greek speakers? They're all Greek speakers. And that's what we need to learn to do. Brothers and sisters, one of the great challenges of the Midlothian Bible Church, where this hits us, if we're going to grow, we got to get over the divide between Hebrew speakers and Greek speakers. we got to get over the divide of old Midlothian, small-town Midlothian, versus... The Southern Plano. If you really believe in the resurrected Christ and he loves people and he wants them to come to know Jesus, do you really think he wants you to move into 10 acres, move into the middle of the 10 acres and never see another soul except when you go to work? This is real serious because some of your lives are at stake. Some of you are going to spend the rest of your life not involved with people. You're going to spend the rest of your life living for horses, living for grass, living for tractors. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. In fact, the Lord might want you to move and have 10 acres, but he doesn't want you to get away from people because he died for them. And because I love you, I want you to get to be 80 years of age, and I want you to still be going strong. The early church rose up by the power of the Spirit and they conquered, they conquered those ethnic divides, those social divides, those religious divides. And they appointed, they appointed Greek speakers from the other group to oversee the food distribution. And God worked in an incredible way. The church united again 
And Stephen moves from serving tables. In Acts chapter 7, he is before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And Stephen gives one of the most stirring presentations of the history of Israel. And he closes by saying, From the beginning of Moses, you rejected him. All the way through to the coming of Christ, you rejected him. And you're all intent on this temple that's built with hands. And God can't dwell A temple on earth can never contain him. And Stephen says Christ is alive. And they get angry and they stone him. So one of the things we go through the book of Acts is this is life and death. In the book of Acts, one of the things that made it alive is they believed Jesus is alive. And even if people threaten our lives, we've got to keep on going. We've got to hang in there because this message is so serious. As we go through the book of Acts, that opposition attacks from within. You've got the problem with the widows in Acts 6. You've got the problem of Ananias and Sapphira lying about their graciousness. You've got the problems of mixing Jews and Gentiles, which is a great big problem in Acts 15. And then all the way through the book, you have the problems from without. And it is a real battle. And I want you to read the book of Acts and realize it closes with the Apostle Paul in prison and in Rome. But it closes not with his martyrdom, because Luke wants you to realize that the big story of Paul's life is not that he had his head cut off under the time of Nero. The big story of Paul's life is he's resurrected. He's alive. And his message, I've been been teaching the same kind of message that he gives today. And so as we go through the book of Acts, the whole story is, and I want you to get this, this is the whole point of the book of Acts. A church that forgets, it's about mission. It's about reaching people with a resurrected truth about Jesus at home, and then the next area, the next towns, then their nation, and ultimately to the farthest corners of the world. A church that forgets that has lost their divine mission. I believe one of the strongest reasons why the Lord has blessed Midlothian Bible Church is from the time that we were born, the very first Sunday that we became a church, we took our most gifted teacher, the one that was used to lay the initial groundwork of this church family, and we sent him away with his wife. We sent him to Eastern Europe to reach people that had never heard that Jesus was alive. Brothers and sisters, I want you to realize that Jesus works here and he works in our nation and he works abroad. I want to give you two closing illustrations. One, about working our nation. If you're afraid about Midlothian growing, last Saturday night, Mary and I were in the place of your worst dreams. We were in northern Chicago When my friend Charles Lyons went to that area, there were seven West Virginia women that only came to Chicago because they needed to earn money and they were hurrying as quick as they could to get back to West Virginia. There were about two or three men in the group and when my friend, right out of seminary, in his early 20s, just like me, when we started Melothian Bible Church, when my friend in his early 20s arrived, the three men left. So he's left with seven West Virginia women. I want to share with you where they were. If you walked outside the places where they were meeting, there there were shootings. It's where the little boy that you heard about was shot in Chicago. 
There were the gangs controlled the area. It's kind of like intermediate zone between gang warfare. There's prostitutes walking the streets. Is that your worst nightmare? You hide under your bed at night when you hear bang, bang. You get under your bed. Now, what chance does the church have with seven West Virginia women, no building, in the midst of the worst area of Chicago? What do you think? You got a plan for that one, guys? You got a way to make it happen? You know what that group did? They got down their knees. And they started praying. When you've got homosexuals that are out there that hate your guts and you want to love them for Jesus and you want to transform this place, when you've got drug addicts, when you've got, it's not like our gangs come to Midlothian. This is the center of gang warfare in Chicago. Last Saturday night, Mary and I sat and ate a meal with Sal, who's a Puerto Rican that came from Puerto Rico, a sharecropper moving right up to the East Coast. His son moved to Chicago, got involved in gang activity. His son came to know Jesus. He's now a pastor on that church staff. And last Saturday night, we saw that young pastor, young Puerto Rican, line up his whole family. And the last one in the line was his dear dad, probably in his early 70s, that had come to know Jesus. We heard a lesbian girl shared. Five years ago, I came to this church, and I was totally involved in the lesbian lifestyle. And this church loved me, and they cared for me. And I came to know Jesus. The resurrected Jesus came to live inside of me. And I'm alive today. And I haven't been involved in lesbian activity since the day I came to know Jesus. It's a struggle, but I've come to know Jesus. And one after another shared like that. One of my friends, a businessman, had started a business back in the, when he was 62 years of age and he could have retired. And we were there that night with 400 of his top leaders. At the end of that service, he stood up and said, I want to challenge you to make an investment in the inner city because the resurrected power of Jesus is showing up. And he gave an envelope to Charles Lyons, the pastor, and said, don't open this till tomorrow night. When I got through speaking last Sunday morning, my friend got up and said, in that envelope is a check for a million dollars. So that little church that's now become a large church in a tough part of Chicago, God worked to provide a million dollars from a company that was founded by an entrepreneurial businessman that got serious about raising money for Jesus. And the group that Mir and I were with made pledges that night to give $250,000. And his company matched that gift. So that little church that's now become a powerhouse for God, God worked in a powerful material way to provide. I've never been in a meeting where a church received a million and a half dollars because of the resurrection power of Jesus. But the biggest message was to change lives. Brothers and sisters, the book of Acts is not about a million and a half dollars. It's about changed lives. It's about believing in cities that are dark. It can become light. It's about believing as Midlothian grows, we can become light. The last challenge of the book of Acts is that we need to take the gospel to the farthest corners of the world. 
And brothers and sisters, I want, especially the young ones, I want you to look at this couple right here. Because you think Tom Cruise did something. He does make-believe tricks that are fostered and, and doctored up. And he's never faced real threats of death. This couple right here are right in your church family. And they've gone to the uttermost corners of the earth. How many of you are glad that we're able to go through the Old Testament and trace his story? Pretty cool thing, isn't it? The Tasu language didn't have any of the Old Testament. And this couple, with the help of their language translator, Irene, decided they would try to take some of the Old Testament stories and translate them into Tasu. They've been working on it for many years, about five years now, and I remember praying for them. And this morning, we wanted the church family to join with them. This is the completed volume, five years of work, and the Tasu people that speak that language now have a renewed access, a first-time access to the Old Testament. I want to pray. I believe that because of our methods today that there's going to be some young people that say, I want to fill in the gap that Lois and Seymour are going to leave because there's still people that don't have any of the Old Testament, any of the New Testament even, in their language. That's what should happen because of the resurrection power of Jesus. I told you about the inner cities. In another year, half the world's population are going to live in cities. Seymour and Lois did the old missionary, you know, with the helmets and everything you might say. He can tell you incredible stories. But a lot of you need to think about going to cities because the world has come to us. And I would pray that because I spoke to you today, the Lord's going to raise up and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Midlothian, in the Dallas area, throughout the United States, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.